The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and postpartisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, here's your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. In the several weeks of mostly peaceful Black Lives Matter protests following the horrific death of George Floyd at the hands of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, we've seen a radical shift in public attitudes toward institutions and historic figures long associated with the Confederacy. It's a shift from reverence to revulsion and sometimes somewhere in between. Changing attitudes have led to the swift removal of statues, of portraits, of other forms of memorial, to figures of the Confederacy. Those figures have stood for a century or more. And no one would argue more fervently for their removal from the town square than Robert E. Lee himself. In the five years between the end of the Civil War and Lee's death, when he was president of Washington University in Virginia, he urged healing and reconciliation and turned aside all efforts to memorialize the Confederacy or his leadership role during that period. This is the Reimagine America Radio Hour. I'm a businesswoman, not a politician. I solve problems. I don't make them. At least I try not to. As an undergraduate, I hold a degree in history from the University of California at Berkeley. The daughter of a friend of mine asked me a couple of years back, what were the main benefits to my business career that came as a result of a degree in history with a minor in economics? My answer was that the story, the study of history and of economics as well, both taught me not to react to circumstances, but to pause, to examine the situation thoughtfully before acting. In simpler terms, to count to three. Because things are not usually as they appear at first glance. You gotta do some digging to get to the truth of a situation. Not some impulsive version of the truth as you would like it to be. And most importantly, what can I learn from what I have found and what has occurred? Because past is prologue. And it's that past is prologue, that's what can we learn, that prompts me to put together this podcast on the eve of the 4th of July. You know, I've watched with concerns as mobs have torn down statues to Confederate figures, and yes, even taken paint and hammers to the Lincoln and Jefferson memorials in Washington, D.C. While I understand the anger, as Karen Watson put it recently on a podcast with us, the rage that many feel, just ripping down those statues denies all of us the opportunity to pause and address the realities of our history. It's all too easy. It's all too satisfying in the moment, but we don't learn anything from it. 
It denies us the necessity to debate the role of these mainly white men in the arch of U.S. history in a more careful and thoughtful way. Because we need to be careful and thoughtful because we have to place both their deeds and their misdeeds within the proper context. That's a context that can, if we will let it, illuminate a path forward toward healing for all. The statues, the memorials, the highways, schools, and other public buildings across the country named for the, and I put little air quotes up, heroes of the Confederacy, end of the air quote, were built in the twilight of the 19th century and the earliest decades of the 20th century, long enough separated from events to allow revisionist history to prevail. Stop and think about how often in your lifetime, until these past few weeks, have you heard these air quote heroes, air quote, referred to as traitors to the Republic? Because since the end of Reconstruction in 1877, we've not heard much about treason in the context of the Civil War. Revisionist history was in reaction to the federal government's punishment of Southern states during the post-Civil War period of military occupation. People who had lost their social status, their wealth, their property, and their citizenship as a result of the war they had championed could not accept history as it was, but only as they wanted to believe it was. Thus, the University of Mississippi football tradition of the rebel yell and shouts of the South shall rise again at the end of every Mississippi football game. Gratefully, it appears in 2020 that the majority of Americans are finally saying no to that ugly racist view of our history. The 28th president of the United States of America, Woodrow Wilson, was one of the most ardent of these revisionists. Wilson, originally a Virginian, was a man more drawn to power and hate than to love, regardless of all the contemporary mythology about his vision for the League of Nations and world peace, to which we can all say, BS. The United States entry into the Great War in 1917 gave Wilson the perfect opportunity to memorialize as historic warriors some of the most vicious members of the early Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, the mobilization of two million men of draft age meant that you had to rapidly acquire land and build buildings for military training camps and Wilson ordered the names of those camps to honor local heroes. Those local heroes just happened to be Confederate generals, many of whom lacked, in fact, any moral redeeming features. Fort Hood, Fort Bragg, Fort Polk, and the list goes on. Congress should, as part of the 2021 Pentagon authorization, establish a commission to rename these installations within the next 12 months. That 
when, when I say rename, I don't mean just a new sign at the entry gate. I mean signage and buildings and barracks and road names and the surrounding communities, the whole shebang. Because that's what needs to be done. And you know what? It shouldn't be that difficult to do because there are plenty of deserving veterans from conflicts as old as the Spanish-American War to the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan and Iraq whose service and sacrifice can be honored and should be honored. For example, just one little example here, Fort Hood, Texas. Audie Murphy, the World War II Medal of Honor recipient, was one of the most decorated combat veterans of World War II or any war in which America has fought. I mean, he was so decorated that the Belgians and, and the French uh, gave him decorations as well as earning every American award, including the Medal of Honor. Well, you know, Audie Murphy is a native son of Texas. How about Fort Murphy? Or there is that longtime Texas resident and World War II pilot, George Herbert Walker Bush, the 41st president of the United States. Personally, I kind of like the ring of Fort Bush. Fort Bragg, North Carolina, named for yet another Confederate brigand, is home to the 82nd Airborne, one of the oldest divisions in the United States military, and also to the Special Warfare Services College. It boasts heroes from every war since Spanish-American, including the Great War and World War II and Korea, and I could go on. How about maybe George Patton as a potential new, uh, a potential general for whom one could name this facility? It was, after all, his armored column that relieved the 82nd after they had held the Battle of the Bulge against insurmountable odds and at enormous sacrifice. Or what about former Joint Chiefs Chair and Secretary of State Colin Powell, who at one time commanded the 101st Airborne out of Campbell, Kentucky, but the 101st is named for, uh, Fort Campbell is named for a Union general from the Civil War. The point is that there are many more positive role models of American heroism and American patriotism that could be honored. And there's no rational reason to delay debating and deciding these very important symbolic and practical changes that must be made. But if we turn around and we look at some statuary, we should applaud the Charleston, South Carolina City Council's swift action. It took him about a week to remove John C. Calhoun's statue from atop a tall, tall, tall marble column. Calhoun was a strong advocate of states' rights, as were most of the statesmen of his time. And he was also an unrepentant champion of slavery. Thus, he should not sit atop a pedestal in the heart of modern Charleston. But part of the next step 
in that particular situation is to answer the question, what memorial is appropriate for a flawed man who was also vice president of the United States during Andrew Jackson's first term, who played in an instrumental role in the Compromise of 1850, bringing California into the Union. Sealing the deal on the so-called manifest destiny of the United States from sea to shining sea. Yes, it would take some time yet to kind of fill in the middle, but the boundaries of the United States were thus formed. Equally important is that during that following decade before the war broke out, the work on a railway that connected California to the rest of the United States had begun and that allowed gold to flow from California's gold fields to finance the Civil War during the first half of the 1860s. So what do you do with John C. Calhoun? To paraphrase Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans, there's a difference between remembrance and reverence. So we should remember John Calhoun. The question just becomes, how? And you know what? The same is true of Andrew Jackson, the hero of New Orleans in the War of 1812 and the seventh president of the United States. Should he be honored with a statue immediately across the street from the White House in Lafayette Square? His treatment of the Seminole and other Native American tribes was reprehensible. And then perhaps that act, offset by his success in holding the Union together in its first great challenge during the nullification crisis, maybe in some ways those kind of balance off a little bit, not quite in the favor of Jackson, but we got to remember both sides of that coin. And yes, Jackson was a slave owner. He was also a courageous leader in the Western expansion of the United States. How do you relocate that statue, or should you, so that it properly balances his mixed historic record? And his is not the only statue that must be evaluated in such a manner by both the United States Park Service and Congress, perhaps with some advice from the Smithsonian Institute. There is that statue of Abraham Lincoln kneeling to, next to a kneeling slave that's in Washington's Lincoln Park. Maybe a more appropriate statue would depict the very human conflict within Lincoln between the military necessity of emancipating the slaves and his ambivalence about their post-war integration into American society. He was a man of his time, and there was widespread belief or fear that the two races could not live side by side and that maybe we should give freed slaves their own state. I believe at one time somebody suggested what is today Tennessee for that role. And Lincoln, as a um, review of his correspondence, et cetera, was deeply concerned about what would happen with Black Americans after the Civil War. And then there's Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee was many things to many different people. He is the son of Revolutionary War hero Light Horse Harry Lee. 
and the husband to the granddaughter of George Washington. Lee's career in the United States Army can only be described as pivotal to the country's development. He oversaw much of the construction of Fort Washington in the Baltimore Harbor. He was a hero of the Mexican War. He was the commandant of West Point on two separate tours. He commanded the 2nd Cavalry Texas Division for part of the decade preceding the Civil War and was the commander of Union troops at Harper's Ferry. Robert E. Lee was Abraham Lincoln's first choice to lead the Union Army, and that leadership of the Union Army had been Lee's dream and goal throughout a 30-year military career. So what a tear it must have been for him because his lineage, pre-revolutionary lineage, and his family's financial well-being drove him to cast his lot reluctantly in the defense. You read his acceptance of the militia of, of the uh, sword for Virginia. It was in defense of Virginia, not offense. And that makes me wonder, what are those pivotal what-if moments, these moments when you can make a good decision or a not-so-good decision? What if General George McClellan, who was looking over his shoulder because he knew Lee wanted him, but that Lincoln wanted him and wanted Lee and not him? I'm sorry, we're getting confused here. Okay, McClellan was looking over his shoulder because he knew that Lincoln, in fact, had wanted Lee and not him as the general to command the Union Army. Like the second son who overcompensated, what if, given Lee's commitment to defend Virginia, what if McClellan had not attacked that Virginia militia at Bull Run? Could the war between the states have been avoided? The National Park Service has been forced to guard the George Washington and Thomas Jefferson memorials at either end of the Capitol Mall against vandals for this last couple of weeks. While branded traitors by King George III, we revere these two men as they swore their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to the nascent United States of America, and they guided this country through its first tenuous decades. So you can ask, had it not been for their wisdom, and their calm and their devotion to duty, would there be a United States? That's on the good side. But they were both slave owners and they both freed their slaves posthumously, which is kind of the easy way to do it, you might say. Jefferson's longtime concubine, Sally Hemings, was furloughed, quote, you know, furloughed, not freed at Jefferson's death and allowed to leave Monticello and live with her freed son. So all the way back to the earliest decades of the 19th century, so much for women's equality. But that does not mean that we should destroy the Jefferson Memorial. We should rather see him as the complicated human being that he was rather than bestowing some more than merely human status on him 
or reviling or reviling him for being a man of his own time and not ours. You know, in San Francisco, they tore down a statue of Francis Scott Key. And Key was a prominent lawyer and a major slave owner in post-revolutionary war Maryland. He was sent to negotiate a prisoner swap during the War of 1812 and thus was sequestered on a British warship watching during the bombardment of Fort McHenry. He is best remembered for penning the poem, The Star-Spangled Banner, which became the national anthem of the United States, not in 1812, but in 1931. Given his history on this earth, I'm not sure, I wouldn't want to vote to restore that statue that was torn down in Golden Gate Park, but I got to ask the question, is the Star-Spangled Banner now in play? You get my point. Even flawed, ordinary human beings do one or two good things in their lives, and we should remember the good while, in fact, also remembering the not-so-good. And the last example was the funniest. It was probably the thing that caused me to write this entire podcast. And that was a response to a Twitter post. I answered in a perfectly honest and, and without really thinking about it moment that you need to see the four men whose pictures, whose faces are on Mount Rushmore, something I'm on, on my bucket list to go see. It seems to me we need to see them not just in the context of either slavery or Native Americans, uh, but in the context of slavery, Native Americans, and their greater and whatever other contributions they made to what we call the arc of American history. That relatively innocuous comment <clears throat> brought the entire Sioux Nation down upon my head. Woo! I got hundreds of tweets. Some of them were really even Native Americans. I mean, it hardly compares to Custer at, Bighorn, at Little Bighorn, but it was quite a reaction to what was a relatively commonplace reminder to people that we've got to remember and honor, even if we don't revere the four presidents on Mount Rushmore within the context of their contributions to the history of the United States. What do I mean? Would there be a United States of America as we know it today without Washington and Jefferson or without Lincoln? Would we have the wealth of natural resources and the national treasures protected and preserved for our time and into the future without the stewardship and the championing of Theodore Roosevelt? For the hundreds of intersectionals and the very few Native Americans who blew up my Twitter account, Theodore Roosevelt was a lot of things. He was bombastic, adventurous, egotistical, and the like. But he did more to protect Native American lives and historic shrines than anyone in the American government from the founding of the Republic to his tenure in office. He protected the future and the reservations through the use of the National Forest Program. He, he made efforts to help to improve 
the uh, quality of life on the reservations. As the civil service commissioner of the United States, he cleaned up a corrupt Bureau of Indian Affairs and took personal interest in improving conditions on the reservations and wrote a book about his experience with Native Americans. He befriended Native Americans during his frequent trips to the West, including his ranch in the Badlands. He nurtured a few bison into, into a small herd. Yeah, he actually took them to New York and a small group of, of bison, and they brought with them all their prairie grass, et cetera, because they didn't seem to like, you know, the zoo's grass. And they built up a little herd and they reintroduced them into the wild as a key to the maintenance and restoration of Native American ways of life. He did write that he thought the Cheyenne and the Comanche were smarter than the Sioux as an overall group. And you know, it is the Sioux who attack his memorial at Mount Rushmore as an affront to Sioux tradition. But on balance, doesn't his legacy outstrip his shortcomings? As we go forward, toward the 244th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we need to focus on the America of the future. The guiding light of a rules-based world order, fully aware that the bending of the arc of history is the work of all of us. And we, like the leaders and ordinary citizens of past, of present, and a future are complex and flawed human beings. Remember these patriots for the lessons they've taught. Neither idolize them nor revile them, but remember them for the lessons that they have taught. And in the meantime, have a safe and happy 4th of July weekend. Thanks for listening to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. You can learn more at reimagineamerica.org. Got a comment or an idea for a future show? Email Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or find her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy or at Reimagine Radio. Take a minute now and go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum. We'd love to hear your thoughts. If you love the podcast, donate and tell others. You can invite Joyce to speak at your next meeting or conference through reimagineamerica.org. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at ricochet.com or c-sweetnetwork.com. That's c-sweetnetwork.com. Together, we really can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>